Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information about Home Church, visit us at myhomechurch.org. So that being said, um, normally when we come into the month of December, I usually begin to transition and, and uh, start to just focus on, on the obvious of the season that we're in. Um, it's one of my favorite times of the year for many reasons, but obviously just what we celebrate with the coming of the Lord and, uh, and all that that means, the incarnation of, of Jesus Christ, the hope that's broken in. Um, but that being said, we're, we're actually not going to go into a traditional Christmas message today. Um, maybe over the next few weeks, I trust we will. I've been inspired by some things from this, from the Christmas story, but I, I, can't, I can't shake that God just wants to go somewhere else this morning. And as you know, as you say often, that's the safest place I know to be is just to, to, to lean into that. So I'm, I know that over the next few weeks, we'll go into some of the more familiar accounts when it comes this time of the year. But I, I do, uh, I just, this is something that's been in my heart. I was inspired last week by Johnny, what he shared. I've been inspired by the Lord. I've been inspired by one of the realities that comes with this season, the Advent, which speaks to the coming of the Lord. And the essence of Advent is expectancy, that God, God is going to come. God is going to come, and that there needs to be a readiness for action. There needs to be a watchfulness for every opening. That's, that's what Advent tells us, is that he who said he would come is going to come, and therefore we need to be watchful, ready, looking to when, he and, when and how he wants to break in. And, and when he comes, we want to... We want to respond rightly. We, we, we want to be willing to risk everything because when he comes, new beginnings start, new freedoms begin. And that's like at the heart of Advent is God says he's coming, so be watchful and ready. And, and with that being said, um, although we're not speaking about the first or second coming, I, I want to actually come back around to this concept of, uh, that we circle regularly with revival um, because that's, that's at the heart of it is the Lord coming. And I, I feel that... Um, I feel the Lord wants to almost revive a hunger for revival, and, and I just feel a passion to keep that before us. And it's not that what we're doing in the meantime is like we're waiting just for something else. We're faithful. God's moving. God's touching lives. But deep down inside, we also know there's promises hanging over the city, and we know that there's more. And so we, we, while we're faithful in the little things that God loves and blesses, where there's also an ache in our heart to see God break in. And again, this Advent season just brings us into some principles of the God who comes. He does. And he will break in. And although there was, again, a first coming and there's an ultimately a second coming, church history shows that there are these moments where the manifest presence of God breaks in. And I want to take us to a passage in the Old Testament that is, I think, and, and many others that are far more brilliant than I, regarded as one of these great texts for revival and, and again, I, just to be clear, I understand it's, it's speaking of the coming of the Lord, and I understand there's the, the first coming that we're celebrating now, and there's the second coming. But again, church history shows uh, that there are these divine seasons, these unusual seasons where the presence of the Lord breaks in. And when that happens, uh, the only thing that can be said is God came down. Uh, heaven truly came onto the earth. And as a result... Uh, lives were forever changed. There was deep repentance. There was sweeping reformation in churches, coming into awareness of, oh my goodness, how dull we have been, how, how double-minded we have been, but something happened when God's presence came in and changed everything. We see radical transformation, both individually, societal, 
And so there's an ache in our heart to see these things happen in this community. And I want to take us to a text in Malachi, if you want to turn there. That, again, there's a lot that, that could be specifically and partially fulfilled in the first and second coming of the Lord. But between the two, those two advents, as I've mentioned, God comes regularly in these unique divine seasons. And I believe there's these eternal principles from Malachi chapter 2. Well, really, it's chapter 3 that we're going to lock into. I'm going to begin with the last verse of chapter 2. There's these eternal principles to the coming of the Lord that are found in this text that I want to draw from that um, speak heavily into revival. Every time he comes, you're going to see things like this take place. Amen? Are you guys prepared? All right, so turn with me, Malachi chapter 2, or the verses I believe will come up here as well. And we're just going to talk about what can happen in seasons of divine visitation. Because he's, he's coming. <laughs> and I, I know, like, positionally, we're, he's here right now. He's in us. But I, I, we feel in our heart he is coming in, in a way that will mark history, in a way that generations to come will be forever changed. So we're going to read Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Everyone there? Or are you looking up on the screen? All right. Here's what I want you to see before we read this verse so you have some context, and then we can really jump in. The Lord is speaking to his people here maybe somewhere around 100 years after what's known as the Babylonian exile. If you're saying, what in the world is Babylonian exile? This, is, this was by far the most devastating event of, of Israel's history. It was essentially as a result of their rebellion, judgment came on them, and they were taken out of, out of their land. Specifically, Jerusalem fell, and that was the big thing because the Messianic promises were about the Messiah coming from Jerusalem and, and sitting in the throne of Zion. And so now, like, what's going to happen? But God will faithfully actually preserve the Messianic line, even in captivity. But essentially, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, in about 538 B.C., he comes in, and as, a, as an act of God's judgment, he takes Israel and many of their people and brings them into his own land. The temple is ransacked. It's, it's, people think this is where the Ark of the Covenant was gone, whether or not Babylon or some of the Jews hid it so that it couldn't be taken, we don't know. Um, the book of Daniel is written with, the, uh, with Jewish people in Babylon, right? So this is about like 100 years or so after that, they've been restored back to the land. This is like the time frame of Nehemiah. City walls are being rebuilt. Zerubbabel has rebuilt the temple. And the point is that restoration is under, underway. Restoration is happening. But at the same time, the the moral degradation of the nation of Israel is mounting. It's, it's rising again. And the people are growing. Uh, there, there's an ache in their heart for God to come, the God of justice, and make everything right. All right, so that's what we're going to read. Let's read verse 17. Malachi stands in the gap between the people of Israel and, and God, and he's kind of giving us this insight into this conversation. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Now he's speaking about Israel. He's saying, Israel, you've wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, meaning Israel, you say this, how have we wearied him by saying, now he's going to say two statements that were in the hearts and mouths of God's people at this time. You've wearied him by saying this, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and even delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Okay, I actually think there's profound application to things that are happening in our nation right now. So what the people are saying is the accusation that's coming from God's people is they're looking around and saying, God, you are coming up short. 
we look around and see all of this brokenness, we see all of this perversion, we see all of this corruption, and where are you? Are you indifferent to evil? Are you apathetic? Actually, it goes on to say, do you even rejoice when the wicked prosper? If, if we see all this corruption, God, if you are good and you care for us, why will you not step in? Uh, there is a, a, a sort of um, an impatience that you're seeing in the people of God as, as they see the corruption that is taking place in Israel. And I really believe there's certain uh, aches, and they're right aches. Listen, I want you to know this is a rightful cry of God's people. When you look around and see the brokenness in humanity, even right now in our nation, it is right to say, where is the God of justice? I mean, we pray in the prayer room. We pray on our own. We're crying out, God, come and touch the government. Come and touch the school systems. We see all of this stuff going on around us that we know is not right. When will you come, God, and set things right? But what's going to amaze them is God in chapter 3 is going to respond, but he's not going to respond in exactly the way that he thought, that they thought. For while they're so focused on everything out there, God is saying, I am coming, but when I come with justice, I don't just fix all the garbage out there. I am also going to deal with everything in the heart of my people. When we cry out for revival, we need to see that we're saying day and night, we're like crying out, God, come and touch Mastic Beach. Come and touch all that's happening. God cares about those things. He will do it. But we also need to know that what we're about to speak into, that God comes as a refining fire. And revival history shows that part of the way God liberates and frees a people and transforms is that in these moments where his presence comes in, the only description that's been seen through accounts of revival history is it's like this holy blazing fire that comes in to the people of God. And everything is laid bare. And as everything begins to come up to the surface, there's actually now a place for real healing, real freedom, real deliverance. This is how God revives his people. Amen? So here you have a people crying out for justice to set these things right, which is appropriate. Now it's God's time to respond. (laughs) And I want to share one other thing. Um, You don't have to pull it up on the screen because I didn't tell you, but I I feel led to share it. This book, Malachi, opens up with God saying this, I have loved you. (laughs) Now the people are questioning, how have you loved us if we don't see the promises coming to pass? But he says, I love you. Why am I saying that? Because I want you to remember that where we're going today, you cannot forget that God started by saying, I love you. That everything that we're about to read, as intense as it is, it is rooted in the mercy of God. It is rooted in the love of God. And I feel over the last few weeks, I feel what God is doing here is pressing in on my life. And it's actually caused, to be honest, a measure of like hesitancy with crying out for revival because I realize that when he comes, I'm going to be laid bare but it is the best thing that could happen to me. But I recognize it. I recognize there's things that I know that are not completely right. Some of them I can't even see, but I know that the only thing that can happen is the refining fire bringing these things to the surface. And the question that I feel in my heart is, do I want it? <laughs> do I really want that? Because I think that's where when it comes in, we have, a, we have a choice. Do we want that or do we say, this is too much? I thought you were going to deal with everyone out there. <laughs> I did not realize that when you came in, you are actually going to touch right here. But what I want you to see is that's the best thing that could happen. All right, let's read it. Are you, you guys kind of see this picture, right? I, I just feel like we're right in this with even our nation right now, crying out for revival, crying out for the God of justice, and God in his goodness, he's coming. So let's read verse 1, chapter 3. Now the Lord's responding to this cry. 
Now, ultimately, he's going to get to a refiner's fire. That's where we're going. So in case you hear me say that, and I'll explain it more in a minute. But this is how he's coming. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Okay, let's just stop for a moment. What God is saying here is, all right, you've been crying out. You've been seeking me to come and deal with all that you see that's wrong. He says, I am coming, but before I come, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send one before me to prepare the way. What this is called is a forerunner. It's an amazing thing that before the sovereign, holy, all-powerful God shows up, he seeks out a human vessel that he begins to put his burden inside of them, and they begin to be so gripped that God is coming that they operate in what's known as a forerunner spirit. They begin to blaze the trail saying, I don't know what's happened, but I have a sense of urgency in my heart knowing the Lord is about to move, and I want to prepare, it says, the hearts of God's people. What does that mean? That means removing all obstacles, all spiritual debris is being kicked out. I believe that the forerunner spirit can rest on an individual. I believe it can rest on a company of people. Like you can have churches that are operating with a forerunner spirit. While everyone is, as the scripture says, eating and drinking and being merry, and there's some beautiful things in that, God is saying, but I'm about to break in. And there's certain people that can't go on as business as usual because it's touched them so deeply. And I've, I've said, I feel like God wants to place a forerunner spirit unto us. Who's, who's the immediate one? We know without a doubt at the first coming, this was John the Baptist. This was in Matthew 11, and this gives us an example of what a forerunner looks like. In Matthew 11, when John's in prison, you may recall that John begins to question, Jesus, are you the one? Because I'm about to be killed, and I've given everything, and are you really the Messiah? And he sends two disciples to ask Jesus this, and Jesus, in the wisdom of God, doesn't necessarily respond directly, but to the crowds, he begins to heal, deliver, lame walk, blind see, preaches good news, and he says, he says, guys, go tell John all that you see and hear, because what he's saying is, this is the kingdom of God, and I'm the messianic king. But at the very end of it, Jesus says this, and about John, he says, he is the one whom it is written, and he quotes right here, Malachi 3.1. He's the one who prepares the way. So John was a, a forerunner, but John, it's not limited to John the Baptist. There will be others before the second coming of God, but also what history shows is when God breaks in in revival, again, these unique seasons where God's manifest glory breaks in, and we're not wondering, are we in and are we not? Everyone knows before that happens, God begins to prime hearts with a forerunner spirit. It said John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. In other words, he came with this intention and power to set hearts ready, and I believe God wants to set our hearts as well. He will come, <laughs> as he said. So let's read it again, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now listen carefully. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. I love that. I'm going to send one before who's going to prime the hearts. And then the one who you've been seeking, crying out, God, come with your justice. He will suddenly break in. And he will come, though. Listen to what he comes. He will come to his, his house, his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, that's Jesus Christ. So there's two messengers, one who prepares the way, and then the actual messenger of the covenant, Hebrews makes it very clear. He's the mediator of a new covenant. That's the same type of language. So I'm gonna, here's how revival works. People begin to cry out. God begins to respond. Send someone as a forerunner or a people who are convinced that he's coming. And then God says, behind that, 
actually comes the one that you've been looking for. That's the one that begins to break in. And he says, in the messenger of the covenant, the last part of verse 1, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. I believe this is one of the greatest pictures of revival. (laughs) The Lord whom you seek. So you have a people that are hungry. There's an ache in their heart because of what they see going on around them. This is in our house right now. There is an ache in so many hearts. We cry out morning and night in the prayer room, looking at the brokenness even in our own city and saying, God, how many times can we walk by the same people in the same cycles of sin, God? We, we recognize our words can't break into these addictions, can't break into this mental insanity, God. We need you to step in. This is what's in their heart. This is what they're crying. He says, you've been seeking. And the one whom you seek, listen carefully, will suddenly come to his temple. So suddenly, the first idea of this is suddenly means it's, an, it's a reference to time. So this is one of the characteristics of revival is that when there are these, again, these unique divine seasons of break-in, it happens suddenly. Now, granted, people have been laboring in the place of prayer. People are getting words, visions, dreams, all the things we've seen here. People are like, I know it. So in a sense, our hearts are being prepared, but nevertheless, when the moment happens, it's a suddenly breaking in. Acts 2, they're in the upper room as they're praying, and suddenly. Oh, they were there praying, they were there looking, they were there hungry, but nevertheless, there was still a moment where it happened. Revival history shows that there are actually definitive starting points where, you will act- where you'll be able to say, right there. <laughs> That's where something shifted. Again, so much activity is even happening now in our body. But in all of that, there's a moment where no one's asking, is it happening, is it not? It is undeniable based on all the things that we're beginning to see and sense. God suddenly breaks in. But here is the biggest point for this scripture and where we're going this morning. I'm no Hebrew scholar, but I'm smart enough to know where to look for these things and to those that have an understanding of this word. And the idea of suddenly does not just mean suddenly in time, but actually here's what it emphasizes even more. It means shocking in nature in how the one who comes. So what God is saying here is you've been crying out for justice to fix everything out there. God says the one whom you're seeking will come. He will not only break in in a moment where you're least expecting it. It could happen today. It could happen today. (laughs) It could happen right now. But here's the most important thing I feel like for us is that it's also saying, and when he comes, he will shock you in the manner that he comes. Oh, I thought he was going to come and do this, but we were completely surprised in the way that he came. He, the way he comes is, when he comes is suddenly, but how he comes is shocking. How he comes is surprising. Remember, what are they doing? They're crying out for justice. They're crying out for God to fix all of the garbage out there. And the suddenly is that God says, I'm going to do that, but I'm also going to deal with everything right in here. I'm not coming, look what he says, I'm not coming to out into the, the public marketplace. I'm coming to my house. Yeah. Yeah. This was fulfilled even in his first coming, when Jesus actually literally suddenly went into his temple, John 2, Matthew 21. He suddenly came in in a, in a time sense, but he suddenly came in in a shocking sense. They thought he was going to overthrow Roman oppression. They did not think he was going to overthrow their religious systems. 
We thought the Messiah, we were crying out for you to come, but when you came, you came to us. You came to deal with this. Listen, there are real injustices that, we, that are right to cry out. We're saying, God, come and deal with corruption in the White House. Come and deal with the, the perversion in schools. He's going to come with that. But when he comes to his house, he didn't go to the White House. <laughs> He's coming to his house first. That's very important. It says, I'm going to shock you when I come. I thought, God, you were just going to tell me how awesome I am <laughs> and how awful everyone else is. But listen, he says, no, I'm going to actually come in love I'm going to confront all the things that are wrong here. So when we're crying out for revival, Lord, come and send your revival fire. This is what we're asking for. I don't even know what I'm saying right now, to be honest. I know it, but I don't really know it. And the Lord's telling me that as I'm sharing this. He's saying, you're asking the right thing, Andrew. You don't even understand. Because when I show up, this isn't like I hope he doesn't come this way. He's the holy one. Go through revival accounts. People fall under the agony of the holy fire of God. But on the other side is profound freedom and joy. God takes the hardest of sinners, the, the hardest of hearts, criminals, drug addicts, and makes them into fiery men and women of God. How does he do that? It's not just a pat on the back. His fire has to come in. And in a moment, while we're saying, God, we're looking at all this stuff, he's going to come and say, but what about the powerlessness of my own people? What about the dullness in my heart? I'm, speak, I'm literally saying me. I'm not saying this to manipulate you into feeling this. I'm saying me. Andrew, what about you that you can walk down the street and not feel my ache for a person that doesn't know me? How can I walk past that? I recognize something's wrong. I need his fire to come in and touch my heart. I need something to touch and say, God, I see something. But why? The prayerlessness, the double living. How can I... How can we say, God, you're everything for two hours and not give him one thought for the rest of the week? These things matter to God. And this isn't like, this isn't to become professional critics, but because he loves us. He's so committed to us walking in all that he has that when he comes, he's coming first for his bride to deal with us. How do I sing praises to God and then curses out of my mouth the rest of the week? How does that happen, Lord? What is going, God, I need you to touch me. In, in, in the Hebrides revival, um, one of the things I wanted to share even before is God primes our heart. The, have you guys ever heard of the Hebrides revival? It, it was a profound move of God in 1949 uh, in some of the isles off of the mainland of Scotland. Uh, Duncan Campbell was a significant figure. Um, but just to kind of give you an idea, even how like, God was priming hearts for this, and I feel he's doing it, doing it now, uh, they had looked at the powerlessness of the church. This was a community that's like, who thinks of the isles off of the, Scotland, uh, the mainland of Scotland? Like, no one would think of this, um, but God's heart was for them. And they recognized just the emptiness, the dullness, and they began to cry out to God. A spirit of intercession fell. And I just want to encourage some who are praying to know the power of your prayers, that part of, in large part, many people believe that this revival was really a response to two women who were interceding day and night. Their names were Christine and Peggy Smith. And what's amazing is they were 84 and 82 years old. They were in old age and not just that. One was blind and the other was severely crippled because of her arthritis. They could not go into the church meetings. They couldn't get into them. So they turned their house into a sanctuary. And they are the ones that prayed. I, some of their testimonies, like they were generals. <laughs> 
Duncan Campbell, the man who, they, so they got a word from the Lord while they were praying that you need to ask for Duncan Campbell to get off the mainland and come into these islands. He's going to be a huge part. When he got the word, he said, that's not for me. <laughs> and he said, I, I, I have other things. I have other things in my schedule. I don't feel a burden for that. And their response was this. That's what man says, but God says otherwise. He shall be here within a fortnight, which is two weeks. Two weeks, his whole schedule shut down. Everything couldn't go forth as it was, and he was so burdened by what happened. While he was in a meeting, he had to tell the guy before he spoke, I'm sorry, sir, but I need to leave. The man said, you have obligations here, Mr. Campbell. He said, I must go where the Holy Spirit is leading me. He went there for 10 days, but wound up being two years. Two women, two women gripped by the reality of what God was about to do. What could, do here, what could God do here? So the Lord says suddenly he's going to come in, he's going to, he's going to break in. While we're crying out for God to do all these things, which is right, he wants to touch our own hearts. So look at verse 2. Here's, it's deepening. It's, it's deepening here. So you're, got, you're seeking the Lord. The one whom you seek is coming. Listen, listen, listen to verse 2, though. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? <laughs> this, is, this, this, is, this is beautiful. This is holy ground, guys. It's saying, hey, they are seeking God to come, and he's saying, the one whom you seek, when he comes, though, who can stand when he comes? Who can stand in their own strength when this God comes? And the, and the answer is no one. It's speaking of an open display of God's power, glory, and sheer awesomeness. That when he shows up, no one, as strong as they think they are, can stand before this. I, I want to be really clear. If we're in this room thinking of, man, I hope this other church hears of this, or I pray, I really hope that this person I'm thinking of right now in this room or who's not here needs to hear this, you're missing the point. I tell you this, when God comes in, do not look to me. I will be laid bare with all of you. I'm, I mean that. Do, do, like, if there's anyone who thinks in this room that when God steps in like this, that they'll be able to say, hello, come, hello, pal, <laughs> and everyone else needs God but not them. We are missing it. John, John, the one who was known, he had a unique revelation of the love of God. He called himself the beloved. He leaned his, his head on the chest of John at the last, uh, on the chest of Jesus at the last supper. He was spirit-filled, blood-bought, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And yet in Revelation 1, when he had an encounter with the glorified Jesus, John didn't say, hey, I'm your man. He fell as if he was dead. John fell as if he was dead. When God comes in, and, and this is all unto something, this is his reforming, redemptive work, but all of us will feel this. And God, we can't, this can't be like turned on and off. It's who he is. So the question I feel God again asking us is, do we want that? Do we really want to see revival? Do we really want to see things change? Because that means our lives being brought up into that as well. Uh, Dr. Brown I don't think I've mentioned him yet, but I have a few things I want to share from him in a moment. Uh, Dr. Brown, Michael Brown, he's considered the maybe the leading messianic scholar in the world, which means he's he's a uh, a Jewish by by birth, but he follows Jesus. He's his Messiah. He's a brilliant man. I just had this profound privilege the last two weeks ago to just be in a classroom with him for a week, listening to him speak, and he's not only a brilliant man, but he's been a part of historical moves of God. Multiple, but most notable, Brownsville in Pensacola, Florida from 95 to 2000. 
And one of the things that he shared that gripped me along this line of everyone gets touched, he said, I can't tell you how many testimonies of individuals I run into, even to this day, who when I see them, the first thing is the tears are still in their eyes. It's still so real of, I can't believe what, what we experienced and we're hungry for it to happen again. But with that, one of the common denominators is this. You know, uh, Dr. Brown, when I heard what God was doing, and it's usually this mature person in faith, that's what they assumed. They said, you know, when I heard what was happening, I immediately got a van, I immediately got a bus, and I brought all these people on it who needed a touch from God. <laughs> and I brought them there for a touch from God. But when I walked into that sanctuary, and I experienced what God was doing, and there was an altar call given, I was the first one to run forward. <laughs> this is what happens. God, we want you to touch everything. We want you to revive our hearts. We want you to set us on fire, Lord. Now, here's why no one can stand. Let's keep reading verse 2. I'll read it from the beginning. And this is the heart of it, where we'll land. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Listen carefully. This is why. For because he is like a refiner's fire, and he is like fuller's soap or launderer's soap. Verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and then they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. You see what's happened here now. Something beautiful. So here's the picture. Crying out to God for revival. Crying out to God to bring justice. God sends a forerunner to prime the hearts. Then God himself comes. But he says, but when I come, I will shock you in how I come. Because I will not just confront everything out there, but I'm coming as a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap to my own people. These two images deal with cleansing. I want to land on refiner's fire, but here's what fuller's soap means. Some of your translations may say launderer's soap. Uh, This isn't speaking of, like, dove. (laughs) Um, this This is like bleach. This is what you call uh, caustic soap. It has acid in it to burn out something, to burn out a stain. The Lord is coming with divine bleach. That's the imagery. He says, you're going to be shocked because what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring my, in love, I'm bringing divine bleach to wash out the deep stains of your own heart. And then he says, but here's the big one. He says, but I'm coming with refiner's fire. Have you ever heard of refiner's fire? I've heard of it, but over these last, like, three weeks, I'm, I'm just like, it's weird. It's so intense, but yet I want it. That's how I know this is the Lord. It's like, I want it, but I also know it's, it's, it's like hard to put in the words the intensity. But refiner's fire is this. God is being pictured as a divine silversmith. And he's coming to his people, and it shocks them what he's about to do. Refiner's fire is when it's a process where you take precious, you take metals and you refine them. You draw out the impurities, and here's how you do it. You take silver, gold, copper, anything like this, and you place it over a fire, but not just any fire. Refiner's fire is, is at an unbearable heat. It has to be. And what begins to happen is the metal actually begins to melt to a molten state, and now it's liquefied. And once that happens, all of the impurities inside begin to rise to the top. And then what the skillful uh, silversmith will do is he will take away all those impurities. And many times in the process, he has to turn the heat up even more, and then he scrapes up. Because the, the hotter the, the fire, the, 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 the more intense it is, the deeper and more uh, impurities it draws out. 
from, 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 uh, from that which could not be seen. Why does he do this? Listen carefully. Why does a blacksmith, silversmith do this? Not to destroy the metal, not to damage the metal, actually quite the opposite. It's because by removing all the junk, it becomes more valuable and more useful in the end. This is the heart of God. And when you throw metals into the refiner's fire, you are throwing things that from the outside, you cannot see anything wrong. This is why it's so important. Is because when you look at this gold and silver, you would look at it and say it's absolutely stunning and beautiful. But when it goes into the refiner's fire, all this stuff starts bubbling up and you're saying, what? That was there the whole time? It was always there, but we were completely unaware of it. And that doesn't mean that it's the bulk of who we are, but it's stuff. It's stuff that's deep in there that's polluting our motives. It's affecting our identity, our peace, our relationships with God. We can't even see it until God's holy fire begins to move in our gatherings. And all of a sudden we go, what? That jealousy was there? That hatred was in my heart, that all, the insecurity, all this stuff, I didn't even know it was there. And God, in his mercy and love, draws it out. It is the refiner's fire that begins to strip off every facade, all of the double living, all the stuff that, honestly, it touches our, it's, it's the reason why we're not in wholehearted obedience. And when we're not living in wholehearted obedience, let's be honest, we're not satisfied. We're just not. And so this is God's mercy, love, and commitment to us to come. This is why we get revived. Because there's stuff that's plaguing our hearts, toxins, that we don't even know is there. But his fire comes, brings it to the surface. We repent, leave it, and that's why we're revived. We're like, oh my goodness, I've never felt so alive. To the depth of conviction and repentance is, to the, is equal to the depth of joy, freedom, life, and transformation. That's why we say, God, let it run deep. Because on the other side of that is a walk with God that we have maybe never experienced before. The spirit of fire that God sends in these moments, it confronts secret pockets of pride, rebellion, rejection, wounds, abuses, insecurities, lust, you name it. God gets all of it so that he would bring us into unity with himself. Amen? It's beautiful, but it's very intense. (laughs) And I'm just saying that from an outsider I've had moments, those moments where God puts things on, but I know that I want it. Listen, if we cry out for revival, there's no such thing as a clean revival. There's no such thing as a neat revival. If we are truly asking for God to revive us, what we're asking is, God, put your refiner's fire in my heart that every deep impurity that I can't even see there, bring it out, that it would be removed so that I would be made whole, so that I would be free. Uh, Dr. Brown again says something. Uh, he wrote a sarcastic poem <laughs> during the Brownsville revival. That uh, it's sarcastic, but it's actually deeply powerful. Uh, there's many lines to it. I just want to read two, and I felt it was fitting when I was thinking about. There's no such thing as a nice revival. He he wrote this. He said, "O oh Lord, come and quench this burning in our soul, but please, O oh Lord, leave us in control. <laughs> o oh Lord." Please send your glory. Please send your power. But please, oh Lord, do it in an hour. (laughs) These are real things, though. It is funny because it's so real. And then we say, God, if we want this, what, what are we willing to let happen? 
because when God started, when God touched the, healed the, the demoniac in the graveyards, now you guys know the story. Demons come out. They say our name is Legion, which means at least 3,000 to 6,000 demons were in this man. He lived naked. They tried to chain him in the cemetery. They couldn't. He was a, he was a walking animal, totally possessed by the Lord, uh, by, by, by demons. But then he gets touched by Jesus, sound, right mind. Uh, Jesus sends all the demons into pigs. Crazy story. The pigs go off the cliff, which deals with, like, economy. Everything's being touched. Their whole lifestyle is being touched. And then the locals hear this, and you would think they would say, let's go. Revival's here. And they say, leave. We don't want this. You're touching our life too much. We like you in the mix a little bit. We don't want that. That's what I feel bearing down on my heart right now. That Lord's like, when I come, everything gets turned upside down for the sake of actually what my heart really wants. But will I go through that? Am I willing to walk through that? But when he comes, he'll be like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Um, often I think when, when revival comes that God, uh, God is going to just take all my problems away. <laughs> and I believe God deals with a lot of our problems, but the way that he deals, it, deals with it is not just by externally taking it, but by making everything that's hidden manifest. That's the way. This is the refiner's fire. Everything that we could not see comes to the surface so that it can be dealt with so that we can be healed. And many times, like I said before, in those moments, it's like, whoa, I thought I was here, Lord, but this is very different. <laughs> this, is, this is intense, God. This is too much. Uh, do you, Isaiah 6, it's a well-known account where Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, has this powerful encounter with the Lord. Uh, he's, he's in the temple of the Lord in a natural sense. He's worshiping God, and all of a sudden he has this open vision where he sees this God of glory, I mean, the, 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 the train of his robe fills the temple, which is this triumphant king. He sees holy angels, seraphim, flying around, covering their eyes. They can't even look upon God because God is so holy. And all they can cry out is holy, holy, holy. It's the only characteristic of God that's repeated three times in a row, which for the Hebrews meant that's how they put exclamation points. We, they didn't have that in their language. What they're trying to say is if you want to know the one thing above all things of who this God is, absolutely holy. Everything is shaking. The temple is trembling. Everything's trembling for his presence. Isaiah sees him. What does Isaiah say? Woe to me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. Now, I'm taking some poetic license here, but just go with me for a moment. If we were to encounter Isaiah two minutes before that encounter we had with the Lord, as he's walking to the temple... And we were to strike a conversation and say, Isaiah, tell me about your walk with God. It may be, I'm pretty serious about God. I'm careful with my words. I'm a man of integrity. Two minutes later, in the presence of God, woe is me. This is a holy problem. I'm a man of unclean lips. I didn't even see that was there. I thought I was some other place. This is how he gets revived to be sent out. And what does the seraphim do? The seraphim goes to the, burn, goes to the altar of God takes burning coal on tongs, comes and touches his lips, and it says your sins are forgiven and you're purified, now go. It touches his lips probably because he's a prophet. But what's happening? That's the refiner's fire. He's being touched by the burning, redemptive fire of God in order to cleanse him that he would be now commissioned out to, that his words would have weight, that what he says would, would produce the very thing it was meant to. We, we sing a song. It's a great song. 
Take me in to the Holy of Holies. <laughs> Take me in by the blood of the Lamb. Take the coal, touch my lips, here I stand. Now, I believe New Covenant worship is meant to be celebratory. The King has come. But sometimes we need to think about what we're singing. Because when I sing that song, many times I have a sweet smile on my face. <laughs> Take the coal, touch my lips, here I stand. <laughs> I am asking God to take burning coals and touch it on my life to burn out all the impurities of my heart. Sing that song at an open fireplace with your friends. <laughs> Sing it at a barbecue. <laughs> Sing it when there's burning coals and you say, wait a minute, what am I really asking? See, there, there's something... This is the purifying, redemptive fire of God that we're, we're asking for. Like Isaiah, God, come in with your fire and touch my heart, God. Every blind spot, I want it to be seen. I want it to come up. I want these things. I know, sometimes I know what I'm doing, but I don't know why I do it. In Isaiah 4.4, it speaks of uh, God's going to wash and cleanse Jerusalem. They're soiled. God says, this is how I'm going to wash her. He says, I'm going to send a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. What is he saying? This isn't destructive judgment. This is God's uh, delivering judgment. He says, I'm going to send a spirit of burning. That means I'm going to send Holy Spirit fire on my bride for the sake of washing her, cleansing her. This is the redemptive fire of God. We're asking, Lord, come and send your Holy Spirit fire on us. <laughs> whatever it looks like, whatever it brings out, However it changes our life, we trust your good. Many people think John the Baptist, when he came on the scene, he was drawing from scriptures like Isaiah 4.4 about a spirit of burning when he says, I baptize with water, but one is coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's saying one who's coming is going to purify his people. We don't have the time to go through. It's, it's probably... Everyone will actually be touched by a baptism of fire in the end. Uh, to the unregenerate, it destroys. To the regenerate, it purifies. It, 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 it's unto life. But God, God is, um, John says, I'm preparing the way for one who's going to come and baptize with a spirit of burning is what he says. Unless we think this is doom and gloom, the verse after that, John says, it says, John went on to preach many other exhortations and good news to the people. <laughs> this is good news that Jesus has come with the spirit of burning to liberate us and free us. Think of the outpouring at Pentecost. They had a spirit of, they had a, they had a baptism of fire. What fell on them in the upper room? Tongues of fire. And what happened when Peter got up and started to preach? What was the response of the crowds? They said, our hearts have been cut to the core. How did that happen? Only fire of the Lord can do that. See, John, John's baptism was, I'll wash you on the outside, but he's going to get up on the inside. He'll get to all the deep-rooted fears and motives and all of that. I can only prepare outwardly, but there's one coming who will get to the motives. So when Peter preaches under the spirit of fire, the hearts of men are being touched so that they would be freed. What did Simeon prophesy over Jesus when he was dedicating the temple? He says, my eyes have seen salvation. And this son, his, his words, he's going to strike a sword to many hearts in Israel. He's going to lay bare the hearts of man. This is, this is a necessary part of revival. In, with all of the glory of the healing and deliverance, all of that, 
the way God is from the inside out changing us is, I believe, right here, refiner's fire that comes in. I mentioned the Hebrides outpouring before. Um, here's an amazing thing. As they were praying for the Holy Spirit to come in Hebrides, when God began to, to move mightily, they were in a barn. It was six people, and one of them stood up, and I think he said, like, this is hogwash or something like, I don't know, some funny phrase that we would never say. But basically he was saying is, you know, we're praying for God to touch all these people. He's like, I, the Lord needs to touch me. The moment he said that, the barn, it says, it like shook and God came into the room and all of them fell before the presence of God. And that's when they left the barn, they saw grown men. These are Scottish men. If you know anything about Scottish men, they are strong men. <laughs> they saw men laying all over the street crying out for repentance. It is said in the Hebrides revival that 75% of the people that were born again and came to the Lord came so outside of church meetings, in the fields, tending to the animals, in their houses. All of a sudden, the spirit of fire came on them, and their hearts were convicted by what was going on in their life. It says of Duncan Campbell that regularly, daily, he was given house calls. As he would approach houses, he could hear the moaning of grown men under the spirit of fire, and, and sometimes he would say, the Lord still has more work to do. I'm not meant to be here just yet. And then once it was time, he'd come. And then he would hear equally the, the shouts of joy for the one now who's been free and, and liberated. Uh, and the first great awakening that swept through this nation, this is the days of Jonathan Edwards. Our nation was in a spirit of, of deism. God was a concept. We didn't think he could move anymore. Alcoholism was running rampant. Uh, there was, it said it's crazy statistics, like one out of every four people or, or one out of every four stores was, was uh, bars and whatnot. Anyways, it was Jonathan Edwards preaching, and we wouldn't really call it preaching. He, he could barely see, so he spoke monotone with his fully written message in front of his face. <laughs> but the, the, the fire of God fell so strong that he had to tell people to be silent because he couldn't finish it. Because the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon hearts and they began to cry out. Some of them, they said, were actually gripping to the altar uh, just because they were, like, holding on for dear life. And they said these were the beginning days of the first great awakening. This is what changed the tide of a nation. These are the things that happen when God's fire comes in. So let's finish this out, verse 3 and 4. Verse 3, I'll read it again. It says, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Uh, one point I want to make on this is that the Levites were considered the spiritual leaders of the day. So I, I, I'm no prophet <laughs> in the sense of like I've been given some mantle to speak to the nation. Um, at least that's not part of my life right now. But I, I think we're seeing some of this unfold in our country right now. Uh, some of you may be aware of over the last few years, there's been an acceleration of compromise being brought to the surface in leaders. Now, some of it we don't know yet. Some of it we do. A lot of it we do, sadly. Could it be that what we're seeing is God's refining fire touching the Levites, touching the leaders first in order to prepare for what he's about to do? That he is coming in a way that we've never seen before. Could there be more still to come? I don't, I, I don't know, but I, I actually take it as a positive. Not that those things have to happen, but that God is so committed to his church. He's dealing with all of this stuff that was hidden. It's coming to the surface now. And then verse 4, it says, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem 
will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Something has happened to God's people now. After the refiner's fire, the, the fuller's soap has touched them. Now there's a pure offering that's being given. Uh, verse 5, which we're not going to read, speaks of those who um, probably at the second coming had resisted the Lord and judgment came on them. So this is what I feel burning in my heart for us <laughs> as we think about the coming of the Lord. As we continue to pray for revival, I want our spiritual antennas up to things like this. So we would not run from it. We would not resist it. We would not call. This is a work of Satan. God wouldn't do this. But we know this is part of the way God is healing us and reviving. And all I, I felt this morning was to make space to respond to God not to a man. I'm not laying hands. No one's laying hands. But if you felt this morning that there were things in your heart that God is already putting his finger on that you know you want him to deal with, that God, God would do that. That the spirit of fire would actually be released here this morning over people's lives. And, and I want to I make, make room for that. So I'm going to actually ask if, uh, I don't know if Caesar, if you could jump on the guitar, if that's possible, the acoustic or something. And I'll let, uh, as the Lord leads him, if he wants to, to sing simple choruses that just lead us. I don't, I don't have him come up here to create a mood. <laughs> um, I, I just believe in the power of worship, and sometimes it's hard for us to articulate what we're feeling. And, uh, and sometimes it helps when someone is leading us into these deep heart cries before the Lord that actually it allows God to break in. And so I'm kind of putting him on the spot to let the Lord lead him. In. Yeah, okay, he's going to jump on the piano, sure. Thank you, Lord. Yeah. I pray, God, that we would not see this as a fantasy. This is you, Lord. This is your word. That everyone, everyone, Lord, you want to touch. Thank you, Lord. In just a moment, I, I recognize it's, it's challenging. We have kids in the kids' church, and we want to respect those that are working. And so I want to just read something, and, um, and then when we open the altars, if, if you have children, um, we do need to grab them. But I just want to, be, I want to do our best. I know it's tough. We're in a tent. We don't have a, a lobby area. But I want to do our best to preserve this moment. And, uh, and so I'm really going to ask that... that uh, we, we just preserve what's happening here to people responding to God's call right now for the fire of the Lord to come on their lives right now and to touch deep-rooted things. So let me read this, and then we'll move forward. This is an actual diary description from Dr. Michael Brown, January 31st, 1997. He had gotten home early in the morning after being in a historical move of God. And these are the words that he penned as to what he experienced. He said, I've just come from the beautiful presence of the Lord. I listened to him reading this to me. From a night of glorious baptismal testimonies and incredible stories of wonderfully changed lives, a night of sovereign visitation, a night of deep, sweeping repentance 
of radical encounters with the living God, of public acts of repentance, from young people throwing their drugs and needles into the garbage to old people discarding their cigarettes. During these five years, so many people got delivered from drugs that they were flushing their drugs, needles, bags, pills into the toilets that it would clog the toilets every night. They had to make announcements that if you're discarding your drugs tonight, please do so in a designated garbage can. This is unbelievable. This is what we need in Mastic Beach. This is, this is what we're asking for. This is what God wants to do, that we would see moments where the fire of God would touch people so broken, but draw them out of this. He says, it was a night of weeping under conviction and rejoicing in newfound freedom. A night when the Spirit fell upon the children in a side room until their intercession and wailing permeated the sanctuary. They, they said the little children began groaning in the room. The Spirit of God was so strong, they put a microphone to it and allowed it to be heard through the whole sanctuary. And everyone just began to weep as they heard five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds crying out for their family, crying out for Florida, crying out for this nation. He said, it was a night when Jesus was exalted in the midst of his church. He says, yes, I've come from the holy presence of the Lord in Brownsville Revival. On January 31st, 1997, the spirit moved, the tears flowed, the Lord touched, the demons fled. This is what happens when revival is in the land. At the end of the night, amidst shouts of joy and victory, Amidst the sound of the newly redeemed enjoying their first moments free from captivity, I turned to my dear friend, evangelist Steve Hill, and said, we don't have to quote from the history books about revival anymore. It's here, and we're seeing it before our eyes. Who can describe a night like this? Who can describe what it's like to be so caught up with God that heaven is virtually here, and you can almost sense the sound of the judge knocking at the door? What can you say when a thousand people respond to the altar call and stay there for two hours getting right with God? What can you say when the prayers you have prayed for your nation, prayers for the real thing, for genuine visitation, for bona fide outpouring, not hype, not sensationalism, not a superficial show, but an awakening of historic proportions, when those prayers are being answered before your eyes and you know that your country will be shaken, what can you say? What can you say when all you want is Jesus? When pleasing him is your total delight? When you just have to tell everyone about God's great salvation? When sin's sweetest temptation is utterly repulsive to you? When you just can't find the words to express to Lord how utterly wonderful he is and how he really is your all in all? What can you say at a sacred time like this? It is too precious to fully describe, too intimate to wholly communicate with mere human speech. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That's what we ask for, Lord. We ask now, God, that your spirit of fire would come upon us, Lord. We want to live for all that you've created us for. I pray for everything that is gnawing away at fullness of life, at joy, 
at our obedience, that the Bible feels outside to what we're experiencing, we ask now that this altar would be consecrated as an altar of fire. Come with your coal, touch our lips, touch our mind, touch our hearts, touch our families, touch our schedules, our careers, our priorities. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come now and move upon us in the name of Jesus. We're so happy you could join us on the Home Church Podcast. We pray this week's message encourages you to behold the Lord Jesus and bring his kingdom wherever you go. You can visit us online at myhomechurch.org, subscribe to our YouTube channel, or follow us on social media. If you would like to give to this ministry, text the amount to 84321. Bless you.